What do you do when your faith is under attack? What do you do when people around you make fun of your beliefs? Their old school beliefs, come on, we're past that. What do you do when you suffer for your faith in this world? When friendships or relationships with family are strained because of your faith in Christ? When your professor knows that you're a Christian and perhaps they take that into account when they grade. When you do the right thing, following in the footsteps of Christ and yet you're penalized and people who do the wrong thing get away with it. What does it mean to live as Christ would have you live in a non-believing culture? Where do you look to for hope? When these pressures build up, where do you get strength to keep going? If you've ever asked any of these questions, Peter can help you. Peter's readers were asking some of these questions. They were suffering. They were under the soft persecution that we've been talking about this week. They needed hope. And in tonight's passage, Peter shows us, shows them what to do with pressures like these. The title for tonight's talk is, Why Should I Suffer for Doing Good? Tonight, we will find great hope to continue on as we serve Jesus and as we represent him in a culture that is increasingly hostile to our faith. Here's our roadmap for tonight. I'm very simple, so two points for you. One, be willing to suffer for doing good. Two, because Christ suffered. He brought you to God and now he reigns. Let me pray for us and then we can read starting in 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 8. Father, we bow before you tonight and we ask God that you would send your spirit. Please stir us up and help us to understand your word. Your word written through Peter to these elect exiles. And God, would you show us what it means for us tonight, this summer, this year, and for our entire lives. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Our first point, be willing to suffer for doing good. Here, Peter starts off using the word finally. What's he doing in verse eight? Well, he's transitioning to the end of the letter. He's starting to sum everything up. And in verse nine, he says not to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but to instead bless. Can you tell that Peter is a disciple of Christ? It sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. If someone slaps you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. So Peter is looking to Jesus as he tells his readers to be willing to suffer for doing good. And then, a couple verses later, 10 through 12, Peter quotes a psalm. He quotes a section of Psalm 34, which was written by David almost a thousand years before Christ walked the earth. So the question is, why does Peter quote David? Well, in that Psalm, David writes about a time when he was standing before a king and it wasn't looking so good. And in Psalm 34, David talks about the fear of God. He says, the fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil and do good. So this is why Peter quotes David from Psalm 34. He's saying, look at David, people, the one who turned away from evil, the one who did good, even when he was standing before this king in a desperate situation. And Peter, again, is writing to these desperate Christians in these desperate situations. They weren't facing the same king that David faced, but they were facing Emperor Nero. They were facing soft persecution. And their lives were hard. For us, for you, maybe you face parents who don't believe the gospel or friends who roll their eyes every time you bring up Jesus. You might be leaving a strong, vibrant Christian community on campus and heading home where it feels like you're on an island. Peter can help you in this chapter. As we've been saying all week, Peter has the elect exiles in mind. He wants his readers to be willing to suffer for doing good. And so far he's alluded to Jesus. He's held up David as an example. Next, let's keep going. Verse 14, Peter says that even if you are to suffer for the sake of righteousness you will be blessed. That doesn't seem right at all. How am I to be blessed if I'm suffering? Why do I have to suffer for the sake of righteousness? These are good questions. Let's keep going in the passage. We will find good answers. So Peter goes on, the end of verses 14 and 15. He says, do not fear those who cause you suffering, but instead honor Christ. Always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. This verse, verse 15, is often used for defending the faith. And there's an even deeper meaning here than just that. These verses, they have a certain 
tone to them, don't they? A tone of suffering for righteousness' sake, a tone of not fearing enemies, a tone of speaking evil or speaking good even when evil is staring us in the face. So verse 15 doesn't seem to be primarily about defending the faith. It it seems to be about uh, sharing about the hope even in the face of suffering. And we, in our suffering, we have real opportunities to talk with people about the hope that keeps us going. Somebody looking at your life might see how you suffer and also see your hopeful attitude in the midst of it. They might ask, what's your deal? What's up with you? How do you keep going? And even in your suffering, you have that opportunity to talk about your hope. You could say, I'm suffering, yes, it's hard. Sometimes I wanna be so angry at the people that are bringing this on me, but how can I be angry at them? I follow a crucified Messiah who said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. My unfading hope is in heaven. Because of Jesus forgiven, I'm gonna be with God in joy forever. So yeah, I might suffer here for a little while and the suffering is real. I'm not saying it's not real, but I am saying that we have hope, a glory that is promised and sure and coming. So Peter's readers should be willing to suffer for doing good because in the suffering, they have the chance to talk about the glory that is coming, to talk about their hope. Notice another thing Peter says, end of verse 15, he says, you must give your reason for hope with gentleness and respect. Tell me, when you know you're right, isn't it tempting to be a little pompous? Maybe just a tad harsh. You're right, they're wrong, you're gonna show them. That's a temptation for me. Maybe not for you, but for me. Peter's admonition here is to share about the hope with gentleness and respect. When I first joined Disciple Makers, I went home to my parents and I let them know that I had to do fundraising. And they weren't super excited about that because the field that I had studied, if you do well in that field, you can make a lot of money. So to graduate from college in that and then come home and do support raising They weren't excited about it. Uh, But I was really excited about Disciple Makers. And I, you know, I did it wrong some of the time, but some of the time I was gentle with them and respectful. And I talked about the hope of Christ and how exciting it is when people come to Christ in college and their whole lives are changed. Where they were going, it, it, it just totally changes as they follow Christ. And not just their, their earthly lives, but people's eternities are in the balance. Mom, dad, I would love to do this. Can I have your blessing? For you, how can you be gentle? How can you be respectful? 
Practically, this means using kind words, even if you have to force those words out of your mouth. You don't want to be gentle. You don't want to give respect. It doesn't feel natural. That's okay. Peter says, gentle, be gentle, be respectful. This is God's word for you. This, re- this means respecting other people because they're made in God's image. But why else? Peter gives us another reason. Why should we be gentle? Why should we be respectful? Verse 16. When you are slandered, when people talk badly about you, those who revile your good behavior may be put to shame. In other words, they're going to look really, really silly for being mad that you're so nice. Wherever you're Maybe you were told on as a kid, but you weren't, really weren't doing anything wrong. Mom, they're doing this thing. I don't like it. Come bring justice. Mom investigates, and you're not doing anything wrong. It's actually the tattletale who's just trying to stir things up. Peter's talking about situations like that, just bigger, uh, more persecution, and eternal effects. Peter wants his readers to be willing to suffer for doing good because it makes the enemies of Christ look shameful and the cause of Christ look appealing. Peter wraps up this section with a concluding uh, sentence, verse 17. And I think this is a partial answer to what we were asking earlier. Earlier we were asking, Why should I suffer for righteousness sake? Here's an answer. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So why should I suffer for righteousness sake? God says it is better. It is better. So how do we apply these words? Here's one application to consider. Be willing to suffer for doing good. And ask yourself, am I really truly willing to suffer for doing good? Maybe you know that's the right Christian answer, but inside your inner lawyer is saying, no, if I do good, I should not suffer. That's not fair. And brother, sister, what I would say to you is you need to take that to God here in chapter three. Spend some time with God this week and ask him to help you in this. God, change my heart. Help me be willing to do good even if I suffer. Let me give you some examples that might get you thinking. If you are nervous about gently and respectfully opposing abortion on campus because the other side is so loud. Are you willing to suffer for doing good? If people on campus look at you funny because you identify with Jesus, you're in the Christian club, you carry the Bible, are you willing to suffer for doing good? If you go back home this summer and you hang out with friends from high school and they start to mock Christians in front of you because they don't know how much you've grown in faith in college, Are you willing to suffer for doing good? In extreme cases, 
Maybe your parents withdraw their financial help for college because you've decided to follow Christ. Are you willing to suffer for doing good? Whatever the case, are you willing to suffer for doing good? Here's a second application. Work hard at your job this summer. Work honorably, work hard. Think about where you'll be working, what you'll be doing. Maybe your coworkers and boss will wanna cut some ethical corners to save time and money. Time and money, they're, they're always the priorities, right? And the question that you must answer before King Jesus on the job is, is this right for me to do? Even if it does save time and money. If I do it a different way, will my coworkers, will my boss, will they think I'm weird? I remember during one of my internships over the summer, I was, it was my last day and I was submitting my hours electronically. And they didn't have a ton for me to do my last day, so they just let me go at three o'clock instead of five. And as I was sitting there logging my hours, I was like, maybe I should just do eight to five. But I did three. I picked 3 p.m. And on my way out, I talked to one of the, the chief actuaries and he asked me very directly, how did you log your time today? And I said, I just, I ended it at three, sir. Have a good summer. This man knew that I was a professing Christian. And, and what would have happened, what kind of witness would it have been if I did the other thing? And I don't give this example just to talk about something good I did, but to get you thinking. What would it look like for you this summer at your job to work honorably and to work hard? Maybe you're on the job and your coworkers, they know that the boss is away, so they spend a lot of time on social media or, or something else. Maybe your boss wants you to cut a corner, an ethical corner and asks you to do something that's sketchy. That's tricky, but you could say something like this. Is this right for us to do? I might be missing something, but as I understand the situation, I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that. What do you think? Another thing that might happen, maybe a coworker of yours is mocking you, spreading false gossip about you in the workplace, Maybe you're in a job like the one Mark talked about a couple nights ago. The answer in that situation isn't to revile those coworkers back. It's not to mock them and talk about them behind their back. You should look for an opportunity to talk with them. If they're sane, if they're agreeable, you could say something like, hey, I know this might not be true, but I hear you might be saying things about me that aren't real. Can you help me understand what's going on? And hopefully that gives you an opportunity. So in summary, we've seen that Peter wants his readers to be willing to suffer for doing good, keeping their eyes on God. We've covered verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. But what else, what else motivates us? This is a hard saying. Why else should I be willing to suffer for doing good? 
Let's talk about our last point. Because Christ suffered, he brought you to God, and now he reigns. And we're going to read starting at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. As we look at these last verses for tonight, verse 18 begins with another important word, for. Fours are so important in the Bible. Why, are, why is it important? Peter is giving reasons to the readers for why they should suffer. Don't eat ice cream now, for, we would say because, dinner's in five minutes. Peter is saying, be willing to suffer for doing good for Christ suffered and he brought you to God. In the movie Endgame, and close your ears if you're planning on watching it this summer, the evil Thanos ends up with a powerful glove called the gauntlet and with all its accompanying gems, he has power over all of creation. And this is a very bad thing because Thanos is evil. He has evil plans. And one of the good guys sees that there is one way to defeat this guy. But the one way is that Iron Man must, must sacrifice his life. And right before Iron Man does, he says the quote at the top of your outline, I am Iron Man. Tony Stark must die so that Thanos can be defeated and people saved. Sound like a familiar story? They, they didn't come up with that. <laughs> Jesus, he gives up his life on the cross, the righteous in the place of the unrighteous, in order that we might be brought to God. This is the ultimate example of the one who was willing to suffer for doing good. And in the moment, suffering is terrible, but in the long run, for Christians, it really does work out. It's great. Jesus suffered, he gets our death, he gets our judgment that we deserve because of our unrighteousness. He willingly gave up his life. So now if anyone trusts in Christ, they are forgiven 100%. Their relationship with a holy God, 100% restored. If you have not yet come to Christ for forgiveness, let me just ask you directly, what are you waiting for? This is the best deal you're ever gonna hear. If you're confused maybe about how to come to Christ, talk to someone from your campus or a staff worker. 
We would love, 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 love to talk through that and pray with you. So Peter wants his readers to be willing to suffer for doing good because Christ did and look what it accomplished. Next, toward the end of verse 18, Peter goes on to describe how Christ was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. He speaks of Jesus going and proclaiming victory over spirits in prison. That's verse 19. So who are these spirits in prison? Why are they in prison? Verse 20, because these spirits formerly did not obey in the days of Noah. So we're not gonna cover the details, but if you want to read more on this, you can read from Genesis six later. I'd encourage you to do that. But here's the point. Jesus is an example of suffering for doing good for at least two reasons. One, salvation is now freely available for anyone who believes and repents. Anybody who believes the gospel of grace and repents. And number two, Jesus secured victory over fallen angels who rebelled against God. Christ is victorious. Even over these angels. So next in verse 20, Peter starts to talk about eight people on an ark. My guess is you're, you know what he's talking about, but just in case you don't, Peter's referencing the story of the flood, which you can also read about in Genesis 6. That's, that's the tie, it's Genesis 6. In case you need a refresher, here's the, here's the short story. At this time in history, people became so wicked, so evil that God was grieved at what he saw on the earth. And as a judgment on this evil, God warns Noah that he's going to flood the earth in judgment. So he says, Noah, make a wooden boat, make an ark in which he and his family can be saved while others are drowned in the judgment. So keep that story in your mind just for a minute. Verse 21, Peter starts talking about baptism and then he starts talking about the resurrection of Jesus. Why does he do this? Peter, we were talking about the flood and now you, here's what Peter's doing. Just as the earth was flooded and just as people were drowned in judgment, now the opposite has happened. Instead of the world being judged, Jesus Christ, one man is judged. He dies on the cross so that people in the world have the chance to come to Christ and be washed. That's what he's saying. In other words, just as those who were on the ark were saved on the wooden ship, now anyone who trusts in Christ and his death on the wooden cross, they're washed. All by God's grace. Peter wants his readers to be willing to suffer for doing good because Christ has triumphed over angels, because Christ took this judgment on himself, a judgment that's worse than a worldwide flood. Next, I, I wanna take a little bit of time and talk about something you might be wondering about. Verse 21, it says that baptism saves you. I thought Jesus saved me. Baptism saves me? 
Maybe you've received a long text message from a friend and instead of reading it, the whole thing, maybe you just skim it and then respond. That's not what we wanna do with Peter right now. So he says that baptism now saves you, but there's more to it. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 21, baptism now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, baptism doesn't save you because you have dirt on your skin and you need to wash that off in order to be with God. No, no, no. Baptism saves you because it's an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. It's all about appealing to God through Christ. Let me give you an example. As people become Christians, here's something that they might pray. Maybe you've prayed this, this prayer. God, I know I have messed up. I know I have sinned. I'm worthy of your judgment. But through the crucifixion of Jesus, through the resurrection, I pray, forgive me of my sins. Restore your relationship with me. Help me to walk with you from here on out. I want to worship you. Amen. What did you hear in that example? It's the appeal to God for purity through Jesus. That's what it's all about. Not salvation by baptism, salvation through Christ. Finally, let's talk about verse 22 and then we'll, we'll consider some applications. Verse 22 says that Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's amazing. Angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is actually fulfilling prophecy. This is fulfilling Psalm 110. And we won't go there now, but let me just read the first verse. It says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I'd encourage you to look at that Psalm later, but here's the point. Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the ruler. Angels are subject to Jesus. Authorities are subject to Jesus. Powers are subject to Jesus. He's the one in charge. He's the one who is reigning. He is the one Peter is telling his readers to look to. Telling us to look to. So how does this apply? Let me give you two applications. Number one, as you suffer for doing good, look to Jesus. As you look to him, your anxieties will fade away. As you feel like an outcast, an exile, at your job, on your campus, in society, look to the hero in heaven, the one who has triumphed. He has conquered, he is reigning, he is reigning now until the game clock expires. There's still a little time left on the clock, but the game is over. Evil is on the retreat, the game has been won. As you feel like an outcast, as people make fun of your old school beliefs, as they misunderstand you, as people call your beliefs harmful and hurtful, look to the hero in heaven. Let your anxieties fade 
away. Keep your eyes fixed on the reigning king. As you suffer, look to Jesus. Here's a quick secondary application from the passage. Identify with Jesus and get baptized. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, get baptized this summer at your local church. Talk to your pastor about how to get that process going. And if you have been baptized and you're a Christian, live up to your baptism. You're, you're obeying commands in Matthew 28. You're obeying Peter's little nudge here toward baptism. As we wrap up, what have we seen? We have seen that we should be willing to suffer for doing good because Christ suffered for doing good. He brought us to God and now he reigns. Let's pray. God, thank you for all the good that you have worked. Thank you that even in the midst of suffering, we can look to you, our hero in heaven, and that we can know for sure that we have glory coming because of what you have done. Christ, you suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might be brought to God. Thank you for your love and thank you for your mercy. Help us to endure this little time here on earth. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.